We're trying to re-articulate our doctrines as they should be is good news. And today our doctrine is about the spirit of prophecy. We do have a prophet in our midst. Since December of 1844, 19 years before there even was a Seventh-day Adventist church, our church had the benefit of a prophet before there was a church. What is the benefit? Well, here's a story. In 2 Kings chapter 6, we hear about, the, remember the story of Elisha versus the king of Syria, who was always plotting to destroy Israel, to conquer it. But every time his armies would assemble, the Israelite armies were already there ready for them. And he kept trying to do that, and repeatedly this happened over and over again. And Ben-Hadad of Syria thought for sure there was a traitor in his midst that was communicating their plans to Israel. And finally one of his servants told him the truth. He said, they have, and here's what he said, um, the prophet is in Israel, telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. And so that's quite interesting there. Verse 12 of 2 Kings chapter 6. And so even his servant understood the value of a prophet. In Amos chapter 3, we find, Sure, the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secrets to his servants, the prophets. And so God has made some promises to us. These seers, these individuals who hear from God and messages from God, are there at all times. He's not going to function without telling us ahead of time what he's going to do. That's what God said to Amos. The church, Paul says, is to come behind in no gift And, of course, one of those gifts is the spirit of prophecy, the text that we read today. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. Now, I'm just going to give you a little quick background, then we're going to get into our thoughts. There are 28 prophets and prophetess that are mentioned in the Bible. The gift of prophecy is among the nine gifts of the Spirit. It's mentioned as one of them, which exists as long as the church needs it. The Seventh-day Adventist Church sees its existence as being in the fulfillment of Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. And the dragon was angry with the woman. And uh, he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the what? Testimony of Jesus Christ. And if you look over in in Revelation 19, the testimony of Jesus Christ is what? So God has again said, even beyond the years of the writing of the Bible, the spirit of prophecy would continue to bless the church down through the ages. Well, the relationship between a modern prophet and the Bible. Listen to this. This is important that we understand this, because sometimes we can get into danger not knowing this. The Bible stands alone as the rule of faith and practice for Christians. That'll never change. No matter how many prophets after the Bible... The Bible is the rule of faith. In Ellen White writings, they are intended to serve three basic purposes. And what I'm showing you next came out of T. Housel Jemison's textbook on a prophet among you and his years of studying Ellen White. And this is what he came up with. Listen to what he said. The reason for the spirit of prophecy through Ellen White was to direct attention to where? The Bible. Why? Because the people had stopped reading the Bible. They needed to be pointed back to the Bible. One of the main purposes that she was called was to point the people back to the Bible, to aid also in understanding the Bible. And if you've read any of Ellen White, you know that she's very good at that, to help in applying biblical principles in our lives. Those are the three reasons he came up with as to why God sent a prophet in our days. 
And, and in the book Evangelism, Ellen White herself says, the testimony of Sister White should not be carried to the front. It should not be in the front. And never do we want any soul to bring in the testimonies ahead of the Bible. So she had it right, don't you think? And not often does the church practice it that way, but uh, you know, sometimes they make mistakes and put her in too high a position, even premature to the Bible. But she had it right. I even found her signature, stuck it under her name. Do you like that? Now I'm going to tell you several things today that fulfill this text that we read this morning about in, 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 in uh, Chronicles about the people will prosper as a result of prophecy. That's the good news. Although almost all of her life was lived in the 19th century, her impact upon the 20th century has been profound. Her writings have been published in more languages and are circulated more than any other woman author in history. That is a stunning statement. How much education did she have? Three grades. She is the most translated woman writer in the entire history of literature and most translated author of either gender. How did that happen? Steps to Christ has been published in nearly 150 languages, well over 100 million in circulation. One of her books. One of her favorite books. During her seven decades of public ministry, she produced more than 100,000 pages, totaling more than 25 million words, 5,000 periodical articles, and 49 books. That's just during her life. More have come out since. She often wrote 20 pages or more a day. Her writings included compilations, and now they've come up to at least 100 books, and they're still putting out new books as they assemble data or quotes from the various sources that they have of Ellen White and put them into new books. Uh, more than two-thirds of these have been published since her death. They're still her writings, but they've been put together. And she gave authority to the White Estate to do that, to put together new writings as need arose. In-depth writing on religion, education, health, prophecy, social relationships, evangelism, publishing and management, and many other topics one author, all of that spectrum throughout her life. She's very Bible-centered as well. Eight of her leading books discussed, maybe you didn't know this, eight of her leading books, 14,000 biblical texts, nearly one half of the total texts in the Bible. That woman is biblically centered. You've noticed that, haven't you? They're all through her writings, right? The Desire of Ages alone discusses 3,955 verses, some of them more than once. Have you ever found a writer that does that? Matthew 5, Ye are the light of the world, is her most often used text that she repeats it 264 times. Ye are the light of the world. That says something to it because she says that much more than even John 3.16, quoted 118 times by her. The written testimonies are not to give new light, but to impress vividly upon the heart the truths of inspiration already revealed. She knew what her role was. She was the gift. The gift that God had given to us, the good news that God had given to us, well, came through her. The Bible and the Bible alone is our 
rule of faith. Over and over again she says that, she believed that. This is one of the last pictures we have of Ellen White. Uh, she looks a little old and a little grouchy, my wife said. But the people that were in her presence didn't feel that way because this picture was taken when she was at um, Elmshaven at the school, the Christian school up there at Elmshaven. She had gone down there to talk to the children. And boy, the children loved to have Ellen White come and visit her, visit them. Whenever her grandchildren would go to see her in the writing room, she would immediately lay down her pen and greet them with a kiss, hold them on her lap, and give them a big hug. Ellen White always knew that children came first. Do you like that about her? Well, I'll try this one. She considered the training of children the most important work of which we have only begun to touch with the tips of our fingers, she says. The need for good books for children was the subject of her last vision given March 3, 1915. Thinking about children and what children's needs are. This is one of the gifts that God gave the church through this woman. A love for children and ministry to children. This is one of the good news about the spirit of prophecy. All right. The sanitarium church is where she was talking to the children. They loved to have her come and talk. Now look at this. These are comments from people. Mrs. H.E. Rogers, who lived in the Ellen White home for a while when a child. She remembered that this about Ellen White. She took such interest in our childhood games. Have you ever thought about Ellen White that way? The children would play games. She would stop what she was doing. She'd just watch. I do that too. Can't resist children. <laughs> At night, she would tell us Bible stories and pray with us. Then off to bed we would go, and once a week, she would let us have a pillow fight. She was warm and human. Well, that's what Mrs. Rogers said. And here, Alma McKibben, Adventist writer, teacher, pioneer, textbook writer, writes this about Ellen White. She would say to uh, Alma McKibben, Notice that little fellow? That's so restless. He is a very important person. You should seek to understand him. This tells you a lot about Ellen White. Watch what he does when he is alone. Study the expression on his face. Don't forget to look in his eyes. She was a student of children. And they knew that she cared about them. Every child do that. Don't ever be discouraged. It may seem today that they are not listening, but they are, she said. Sow the seed in the power of God, and it must bear fruit. Children are the best detectives on the authenticity of adults. They know who really cares, and they loved to be near her. She had a passion for children. Let me explain that. In the summer of 1852, children's ministry began in the Seventh-day Adventist Church with a new journal called The Youth Instructor. Here's how it started. That picture up there is James White. She and her husband, uh, uh, Ellen White and James, were on their way 100 miles in a buggy from Rochester, New York to Bangor, Maine. 100 miles in a buggy. One of the children was laying on a, on a pillow right there on the bench of the buggy. And on one of the stops, this is how it all started. James got out. He was a school teacher. He loved children. He fought for the right for children to be baptized when they're children. The church wasn't in favor of that. He fought for that right, even before there was a Seventh-day Adventist church. 
And, um, and so he began to do something. He sat there on a, on a whatever he was sitting on, <laughs> and he started to write. And what he was writing was the beginning of the youth instructor. Stories, messages, something for children. So that in the church, even though they had so many important things to talk to adults about, he wanted to make sure there was something special for children. And he started writing just articles and stories for children. This is one of the blessings of the spirit of prophecy. And it came also into James White as well, her husband. And that was the beginning. This is, by the way, the heading of the first youth instructor. That was published, and you can find that on the web. You can find everything on the web today. Okay. And Ellen White published articles and books on the importance of good child training. 475 articles in the youth instructor. And that found its way to the homes of families all over across the country. And they looked for it because in those days there weren't libraries filled with books. And when they got the youth instructor, they knew there would be things for the children, things for the adults, something to read. An Appeal to Mothers in 1864, one of the first books. An Appeal to Youth, also in that year, and Christian Education. And then these compilations, 1904, Book Education, a grand book. Uh, some educators claim that's the best book on education ever printed. Counsels to Parents and Teachers and Students and Fundamentals of Christian Education, Messages to Young People, which I read when I was a kid. Uh, Councils on Sabbath School Work and Adventist Home, which I also read when I was getting ready to get married. While other couples were necking, necking, necking. My wife and I were reading that book. As I look back upon it, that sounds weird, but we did do that. <laughs> and, you know, and, and you know what? In our minds, we were making up a little template of what our home was going to be about. That's what we were doing. In the girls' dorm, in the, in the lobby. And there were other couples necking while we were doing that. A total of 3,546 pages, specifically devoted to children. Now, I'll tell you another way that Ellen White tried to communicate uh, this passion, this love that she had for children. Uh, I have in my possession, I'm so happy I do too, this book that I just put on the screen there, Sunshine in the Home. Um, she would travel across the country, and in those days, as I said, literature was not as prevalent as it is today, and they certainly didn't have the internet. So she would find beautiful little illustrations, she would find fabulous stories, whatever it was, and she would cut these out of clippings wherever she would find them and paste them into large books. Paste them like this. And she had one of her secretaries help her do this task. And over the years, she had a number of various different books that she had put together of clippings and these became eventually this book that I just put on the screen, Sunshine in the Home. And they put out beautiful wood, wood what do they call this, uh, wood prints, um, eh, pictures. You know what I'm talking about? It's, I'm not using the right term. Where they would do the drawing and they would ink it and then they got a beautiful, what is it? I can't remember what, what it was called. But beautiful pictures on them and great stories. And then they published them in these oversized books, these large books. And they came out and they just were beautiful. And I just enjoy having one of those still today in my possession of uh, back in those days. Uh, Sunshine in the Home. Great series of books. Now, from that time, there came out a whole bunch of other kind of books 
and they were all for children. One of them was The Little Friend, which was, of course, published by the church. Stories, the children looked forward to those all the time. Who was behind it? Ellen White was always behind it. I don't think we would have had the children's ministry like we have today. I'm pretty sure we wouldn't. It hadn't been for Ellen White. That was one of the gifts that came as a result of the spirit of prophecy, God's prophecy coming through this woman. Choice stories they collected for children. Um, and also, you see the scrapbook stories down there in the corner? These were some of the books. And by the way, I looked in my bookshelf at home, and we, that's a picture of our book, scrapbook stories, right there. These are kind of rare to find today. But it was all showing the passion that the Lord had. Get something out for the children. Books out for them to read. I remember when I was a kid, this is how important this was, uh, reading. Spent a lot of time reading. The church is to take action for its children. And she writes this from Melbourne, Australia, 1892. We have an army of youth today who can do much if they are properly directed and encouraged. We want our children to believe the truth, to be blessed of God, to act a part in well-organized plans for helping other youth, to be so trained that they may rightly represent the truth, giving them reason of the hope that is within them. Those are wonderful things, but it doesn't happen by accident. It happens when churches and people give themselves over to that and honoring God in any branch of the work where they are qualified to labor. Then in 1893, she encouraged all to form companies somewhat after the order of the Christian Endeavor Society. This was churches thinking of children, working for children, planning activities for children. It didn't exist. Started in other churches. She saw that and she says, we need that in our church. She spearheaded it to make it happen. See what can be done by each accountable human agent in watching for and improving opportunities to work for the master. Well, then the church responds. In 1891, guess what? Uh, I thought I corrected that. A youth, the TH, society was organized. Mead McGuire became a youth leader for the rest of his ministry, was in charge. 1893, Young People's Society in Lincoln, Nebraska was organized. These are first times. In 1894, Sunshine Bands, does it remind you of Sunshine at the Home or in the Home, were launched by Luther Warren, who spent his whole career working for young people. In 1899, the Ohio Conference became the first conference to officially organize its young people. In 1901, Iowa began explosive growth in youth ministry until soon they had 14 groups with 186 youth. And some of these became missionaries that went to China and Portugal. Also in 1901, the General Conference took steps, finally, to form a young people's society. What made that happen? Why did that happen? Who was, who was behind it all? Who was encouraging it? Where did she get her information? Telling us that we had to do this. She also watched what other churches were doing, says, that's good, we need to do something like that. And people picked it up and went with it. All right. In 1907, they finally organized the MV Society. What's that stand for? Volunteers. How many of you have been in the MV Society? Boy, look how old you are. In 1950, then they started the JMV. What was that? They're younger, right? Younger. I was in that. In 1960, this was special to me because I can remember this. 
1960, I went to the first union camporee in existence. They never had one before in Lone Pine. What a horrible place to go to. <laughs> but it was just covered with all kinds of kids, and it was exciting. How was I to know that years later I would marry a girl whose dad and mom lived in Lone Pine? Isn't that a little weird? Anyway, Lone Pine with Pathfinders. And then in 1994, the International Pathfinder Campery in Denver, Colorado, the first one of those. And then 19, 2014, uh, the International Pathfinder Campery in Oshkosh is the one that's coming up. And they expect about how many Pathfinders? From all around the world. Now, there are one and a half million Pathfinders. Where do you think that all came from? Constantly, this woman keeping before the church the need to do something for children. We're talking about the good news of our doctrine. Just from what she did in encouraging this, and it was an uphill battle all the way along. Today, look at what we have. Million and a half Pathfinders, ages 10 to 15, 38,000 clubs worldwide. And a new thing that some of us are talking about maybe starting here in Fort Bragg, and that is an adventurous club. Look who's smiling back there. <laughs> Heidi. That's exciting. Ages 5 to 9. Okay. Do you remember these? Go ahead. Tell me how old you are. Do you remember those? What are they? Did you read those reading course books? When I was a kid, my mom made sure we had those things. And you know what? I developed a love for reading because of this. Because she planted the seed, the church took that seed, and they went off. Yes? Just because the books are old doesn't mean you're old. Because I grew up reading. Okay, yes. And you're definitely not old. I know that. <laughs> but it is great, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And you had to read some of them just to get through your Pathfinder honors, right? You had to do that. And so the church as a whole was recognizing young people. It meant that you had to have writers that would write these books for children. And the children just absorbed them. And I still have some of these books in my library today. My wife won't let go of them. But I remember the love of reading. And by the way, another thing that I love too, I went to school in those days, and this isn't true today, but in, in those days they had, did you remember the Landmark series? Does anybody remember the Landmark series? A series of books, not Adventists, but they were published for children to read, all true stories about American, and another one, they had a World series in them too, international figures. And I just poured through those books. You know what happens when you read these kind of books? Children put themselves in the character roles. And they begin to sense and feel what life is about. And then in these characters, they learn what it's like to be courageous. They learn what it's like, you know, to be strong. They learn what it's like to be faithful through the characters of the stories that they read about. It helps to form character. And so this was an extremely important thing. Well, that's not all that happened for children Ellen G. White urged upon the church in the 1850s and 60s to do something for its youth, but it took the church another, well, 10 or 20 years, however, you know, to make something happen. In 2012, now we have elementary schools. 
How many elementary schools does Seventh-day Adventist Church have around the world? 5,813. How many children? Over a million in our school system. How did it happen? Because God wanted it so. He told his prophet. The people finally obeyed the prophet over a number of years. And the church has prospered. Just exactly what uh, Jehoshaphat said. Secondary schools. How many? 1,823. Enrollment of 494,000. These are 2012 statistics. Training institutions to train workers to do things different places around the world. 59 of those. I didn't even know they existed. And an enrollment of 8,862. Universities. Did you know that the church runs this many universities around the world? This is a phenomena. University has just exploded across the globe. Russia is opening up. South America is opening up. You get these, India is opening up. All kinds of universities just starting all the time today so that they can have more and more people learn about what it's like to be leaders. A total? 7,883 schools. Enrollment of how many? Every year. 1.7 million. How did it all start? God wanted it. Talk to who? prophet. The prophet talked to the church and finally the church reached out and began to do all of these amazing things. That is some good, good news. One last thing. Uh, this is the school that I have attended, uh, Andrews University. It was founded in 1874 in Battle Creek College. That's Battle Creek College. In 1901 it moved to Berrien Springs. And it was named Emmanuel Missionary College. 1930s, the Theological Seminary located at PUC moved to Potomac University in Washington in 59. It joined EMC, that is Emmanuel Missionary College, which was quickly renamed to Andrews University. Griggs, you know, the correspondence school is now located there as well. And they have 3,551 students, 272 faculty, 13% of their students are from international right? Why do we have that school? Why do we have any of these schools? This is a huge adventure to reach out and do something like this. God told the prophet who told the church and the church did it. If that cycle had not have happened, we probably wouldn't have anything like this. Uh, it also offers 130 undergraduate majors and 70 graduate majors and in all of these fields, Andrews University, look at them down there, health professions, graduate studies, theological seminary, education, aviation, agriculture, arts and sciences, architecture, art and design. All right. Such amazing results. Resulting from the word of God's modern day prophet coming from the heart of God to his people. And from Ellen and James White. How can you explain it? That much happening in the period of time about a hundred years. How can you explain it? What memories and wonders do you recall from growing up as a child benefiting from children's ministries? What do you recall? How special was it? You could always go to a Seventh-day Adventist church knowing there's going to be what? Sabbath school divisions for the children. You always knew that. And then in larger, you knew there'd be larger schools, uh, there would be schools and there would be pathfinder clubs. 
I remember when I was a kid growing up, one of the greatest things I loved to do was go in-gathering of all crazy things. We would go up in the mountains. We would walk up to, up to doors. Little kids, well, I wasn't a little kid then, I was a teenager, knocking on doors, that was pretty scary. But we got over the fear of doing that. But you can't think of the Seventh Avenue Church now apart from children's ministries. And that was something that the Lord made happen through the prophet. And you can see how that's good news. Now I'm going to switch gears now, leaving the children aside. Now we're going to go to another area, directly a result of spirit of prophecy as well, but it's on the subject of health. So follow with me here. Adventists in the 1800s were, like most people of that day, very unhealthy. Have you ever read about what people ate back then? America was sick and dirty nation. Sanitation and personal hygiene were almost non-existent. Dietary habits included gargantuan amounts of meat. Fruit, green vegetables were seldom served. Foods that did appear on the table were saturated with butter or lard. That was common. Sickness were treated with bleedings. That's a fun way to go. Or poisonous medicines often. We've forgotten this. Ellen White predicted, and listen to this great statement she said. How'd she get this? From God. If Seventh-day Adventists practiced what they professed to believe, if they were sincere health reformers, they would indeed be a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. She wrote that in Councils on Health. 100 years later, this is the cause and effect again. We just heard about that in children's ministries, now with health. Cause and effect. Adventists are known around the world as having some kind of an advantage, and it has to do with health. The phrase first appeared in 1966 in a Time magazine article that reported that Adventists had one-fourth lung disease as other Californians, and there were twice as many SDAs alive between the ages of 80 and 85 as non-SDAs in California. And they entitled that the Adventist Advantage. The November 2005 National Geographic reported that residents of Okinawa, Sardinia, and Loma Linda live longer and healthier than anyone else on the earth. And that it was because of a lifestyle choices that made the difference. Residents of these three places produce a high rate of centenarians, suffer a fraction of the diseases that commonly kill people in other parts of the other developed world and enjoy more healthy years of life. In some, they offer three sets of best practices to emulate. The rest is up to you. Now the entire world looks at Seventh-day Adventists. By the way, for years, the uh, reg uh, recommended dietary allowances, the RDA, you know, were set by uh, longshoremen. They're strong. So if they're strong, everybody should eat that. <laughs> and so they would put a lot of meat on the table and things like that. Now, what standards determine the registered dietary, the required dietary allowances? Seventh-day Adventist studies on Seventh-day Adventists. They are the standard today. The government makes no bones about it. It's the Seventh-day Adventists are offering the best information to become the long-term study that started at Loma Linda in the 1960s. Well, how did that happen? Listen to the story. Here are two guys, both doctors, Dr. Kellogg, who's quite famous, and Dr. Paulson. 
who founded Hinsdale Sanitarium. Here is what, how the story goes. In 1895, Dr. David Paulson, just completing his medical training in New York City, was asked by Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, do you know how it is that Battle Creek Sanitarium is able to keep five years ahead of the medical profession? Dr. Paulson said he didn't know, and so Kellogg told him. When a new thing is brought out in the medical world, I know from my knowledge of the spirit of prophecy whether it belongs in our system or not. He is saying he weighs all the information that's coming out in medical science based upon what? Spirit of prophecy. Now, if it does, I instantly adopt it and advertise it while the rest of the doctors are slowly feeling their way. And when they finally adopt it, I've had five years start on them. He was using the spirit of prophecy to guide him. Secondly, on the other hand, he continued, when the medical profession is swept off their feet by some new fad, if it does not fit the light we have received, I simply do not touch it. And when the doctors finally discover their mistake, they wonder how it came that I did not get caught. You see what a blessing the spirit of prophecy can be. It can save us from a lot of pitfalls. He was just practicing that. John Harvey Kellogg was doing that. Here was a, a picture that I couldn't resist. I had to show it to you. How the writings of Ellen White knew very little about health except for her own study herself, a little bit in her own practice and her own search for the sake of her, her health and her husband's health and her children's health. But then also on the other side, John Harvey Kellogg with his parrot up there on his shoulder. And um, how these two working together brought about a transformation in medical science like you've never seen. Now let's take a look at this. I'm going to explain this one more way. Loma Linda University. In 1905, the Committee on Education from the American Medical Association told our leaders that with such small numbers and so little resources and facilities and the lack of trained men, that is trained doctors, they could never hope to successfully operate a medical school. 1905. They said a C-grade rating would be the best that we could give, but then they were quick to go on to say that they were closing all schools that were rated C. <laughs> they wanted to get accredited. That didn't sound too good. Well, what should they do? They asked Ellen White what to do. The light given me is, we must provide that which is essential to qualify our youth who desire to be physicians. The medical school at Loma Linda is to be of the what? Highest order. And for the special preparation of those of our youth who have clear convictions of their duty to obtain a medical education that will enable them to pass the examinations required by law of all those who practice as regularly qualified physicians, we are to supply whatever may be required. She does not hold back anything. She says we're supposed to be the top. Well, here's the representative of the General Conference. He says to his group, trying to decide what they're going to do about Loma Linda, the AMA says, we're going to give you a C rating, which means we're going to close you down if you start. What should we do? He says. I can conjure up many reasons why at this time we are ill-prepared to establish and operate a medical school. That wouldn't be hard to do. It is not hard for any man to say that we have not the money on hand, on hand. And any man need not be very wise to say we do not 
know where we shall get medical men trained and qualified to take up this work. That was true too. But the question is, will we establish this medical school when the Lord has indicated so plainly that it's our duty? Where did we get that from Ellen White? It's our duty to step way beyond all possibilities and do the impossible. That's what she said. The same thing prophets have done all through the history of the world. Then, in words of confidence, he declared, When the statement from Sister White is read, I am sure the majority of our brethren will feel as we feel tonight that the Lord has spoken and we will obey. Why, she pushed us over the edge all the time. The vote was, by the way, that's a picture of her speaking at the Loma Linda University dedication. See, she's there, she's pretty old at this time. When the vote was taken, every hand was raised in affirmation. Go ahead. However, when news reached Ellen White that they planned to sell some of the land to raise money for the school, she replied, Don't do it! We will need more land! That's the thing about prophets. They know nothing about reality. (laughs) So they pointed out that the conference could not afford money or for more land. And Ellen White, what does the prophet sometimes do? She goes right around them. She contacted Adventist businessmen, physicians, and farmers to help by buying up hundreds of acres to be held till the medical school could take it over. And so the dream came true. What do you see behind you? What they didn't see it that day. And look what it's become. 1962, at the end of a visit from the AMA, remember them? Committee on Education. The representative stood on a hill overlooking the Loma Linda University campus and the dean of a medical school of a large state university who was on that committee was sitting with him. And this is what he said. What would I give for a campus like this for my medical school? And then he thoughtfully observed years ago, someone must have had vision. Right. <laughs> Today, Lumberland University is among the largest private medical educational centers in the United States. Uh, Most of the medical center's 550 physician staff also teach at the School of Medicine. The strong bond between treating and teaching makes Lumberland University Medical School physicians among the most highly trained and cutting-edge physicians in the region. The medical center is also the only level one regional trauma center for four inland Southern California counties. With nearly 900 beds available, it serves more than 33,000 inpatients and 650 outpatients every year. The church said, we can't do that. The church says, we can't do that on education. They can't do that with schools. We can't do any of these things. God says, do it. And he uses a prophet, and the church takes a hold of it, and the church prospers. Now let me close with these stories. In October of 1984, we're back at the Loma Linda now, how the Lord used uh, Ellen White in establishing this as prophet. Loma Linda University made worldwide headlines. Do you remember this? When Dr. Leonard Bailey performed the first cross-species heart transplant between a baboon and a little baby called Baby Faye. First time this had ever happened. Where did it happen? 
No one at that time was volunteering dead babies' hearts for transplantation. Newborn baby goats were used as models for actually, and actually grow them to be adults to have uh, their own babies. That's what they were practicing on. That encouraged them to believe transplantation might have a place with newborn infants. Baby Stephanie Fay, after the transplant, lived 21 days, but she died of many multiple complications, which were there already. Here is a picture, modern-day picture of Dr. Bailey. In the 20 years following that transplant, over 6,000 successful transplants have been performed. He's holding one in his arms right there. Now, the story goes on. Dr. Bailey brought worldwide recognition to Lumberton University. The whole world would pay attention? Through his pioneering work on infant heart transplants. But... When Dr. Bailey was a student applying to go to school at Loma Linda University, they turned him down. It was only on the second time around he got accepted. And he was the man, principally, that put Loma Linda University before the entire world. It was quite amazing. Luckily for him, the university that accepted him on the second time more than that, Dr. Bailey became the beneficiary of a second marvel at Loma Linda University. And you may know about this called the Proton Accelerator. Very precision. They built this thing uh, through Fermi Labs in Chicago, and they brought this thing out. And this is the only medical teaching hospital that has it, I think, in the entire world. And, um, and he had developed, I think, prostate cancer? He got treated by the second marvel. He performed the first one. He got treated by the second, and he's got cured from it. It is amazing what God can do when people will listen to what he's telling them to do through his prophets. Whether they be biblical prophets or whether they be later prophets, those that get the word of the Lord and share it with us can actually turn the world around in what it can do. And you think of the impact. It's absolutely startling. Has the spirit of prophecy been a blessing to you in your life? This is the text. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. Those prophets will take you to places that you feel are absolutely impossible to go. But they are the way to go. Where would we be as a people if we didn't have people that loved children? Prophets to inspire us to move in the direction to meet the ministry needs of children. Where would we be today in the area of health? The whole world looks at Seventh-day Adventist education as the model to the entire world. The whole world looks at the Adventist health system and it has become the model for the entire world. How did it start? Because of a prophet who got a vision and related to the people. That's good news, I think. And that's a story that needs to be told. May God bless you as you take seriously what a treasure we have that God has given us in the prophetic ministry. Great treasure. It has blessed me abundantly.